Now, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, we'll begin. I'm going to read God's Word. Now, I'm going to read through verse 14, but in your bulletin, it's only printed through verse 5, and that's okay. The reading through verse 14 is just to give you a context. It's printed in your bulletin if you don't have your scriptures with you. Uh, Now, hear God's Word. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, and therefore God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear away like a garment, like a robe, that you will roll them up and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. I don't know, uh, I know some of you have probably seen this movie from us way back. I forgot to look up when it was done, but uh, City Slickers with Billy Crystal and the very famous actor who passed away not too many years later, uh, Jack Palance. This was an Oscar-winning movie. It was a comedy, and it was about three New York executives uh, in high-powered business uh, hitting a midlife crisis. They were all in their late 30s, early 40s, that range, and they were in a midlife crisis. And so one of them gets the idea, what we need is we need to go to a dude ranch. We need to go out west and find ourselves and, and discover uh, the true meaning of life because they were all just burned out. Their marriages are failing. Work doesn't matter to them anymore. So they find this dude ranch out west where they cater to this kind of a person who's got a lot of money, can go out there, ride a horse, and they set up a cattle drive, a fake cattle drive, uh, moving 
cows from here to there and let these guys go and accompany them. But in the movie, the guy that is the, the main character of the, of the uh, cattle drive is Jack Palance. And he's a real cowboy and he's a very rough, tough, crusty cowboy. He rolls his cigarettes with one hand uh, and he's the trail boss. And so one night, a stray gets loose and he and Billy Crystal, who's the other major character in this, one of those midlife crisis guys, uh, go off to catch the stray. And while they're alone, they have this conversation. Listen, it's fascinating. Mitch, who's the guy from New York, is asking Curly. And he says this, Does your life make sense to you? Curly replies, Oh, you New York City folks, you worry a lot. How old are you anyway? And he says, 38? And Mitch says, No, I'm 39. And... Curly says, you city slickers, you come here all about the same age. You spend 50 weeks getting your life in knots like a rope. And then you think two weeks out here will untie them. None of you get it. You know what the secret to life is? And of course by now he's got Billy Crystal's attention because that's where he was going and why he was there. No, what, what is the secret to life? Curly says, one thing, just one thing. You stick to it, and everything else don't mean nothing. And now Billy Crystal's really excited. Great, great, what is it? What is that one thing? And Curly hops up on his horse and gives him the spurs, and off he goes, and he calls back to him and said, that's for you to figure out. One thing, this is something that our culture and the world, I think from the time, uh, the beginning of history till now, but certainly now when we're living in America in a hyper-individualized culture where everything, I just define whatever I want the world around me to be, even God. I don't have to take any cues from any reality. God is just whatever I want Him to be, and I'll shape and form Him to conform to my thinking. And what we fail to realize is that if that's true, then God is just you. There's no objective reality to God with that kind of a mindset. But in hyper-individualism, we don't need the church, we don't need community, we don't need anybody, it's just me and that one thing. And I think all of us, our culture, certainly your neighbors, your friends, maybe even family, are striving to find the answer, what is the meaning to life? Why am I discontent? Why can I not find peace and satisfaction? Why am I looking for it everywhere? That's the one thing. Curly reduced everything down to one thing. And it would be nice if creation was like, it would be nice if the world, we could find that one thing. But it's too complicated. Every one of you know, by the time you're five years old, you know things are too complicated for it to be one thing. Because if you give a child that one thing, what does he want? The next thing. And if you give them the next thing, what do they want? The next thing. And... If you do that with an adult, it's always the next thing. We're never satisfied. It's never one thing. 
And Scripture agrees that it's impossible. You will never find it. Adam and Eve tried to find it by becoming like God in Genesis 3. That was no good. Well, our Lord and the Gospel of Jesus Christ teach us there is one thing. In spite of all the complexities of life, there's one thing. But it's not a thing. It's a person. And as a pastor, I talk to people all day long, and they, you know, when I'm, well, not all day, every day, but I talk to people a lot, and they will tell me, oh, God this and God that. Use God, and they talk about God in very abstract ways. And that's all fine and dandy. But how do you know who He is? How can you really understand the heart of an infinite being that is so glorious and so beyond uh, our imaginations can't even begin to grasp it? How can you do this? And I would say it's impossible. You cannot know God. Not in a personal way. But then you come and you're introduced to the person of Jesus Christ, His Son. Now you can know Him, because He's just like us. And the great Saint Anselm wrote a piece called Cur Deus Homo. I would love for you to, to download it from the internet and read it. It's truly remarkable. And the question in Latin is, Cur Deus Homo, is why the God-man? Why do we need God to become a man? What's the point of the incarnation? And who is this God, man, who was born in the manger and the Christmas story and all that. Why the God, man, and who is he? And so for the next four weeks, today I'm just doing an introduction, but the next four weeks, we're going to ask that question. This is the Christmas time. This is the Advent season. And, it, it, you know, you can get distracted. I mean, Christmas lights and gifts and all the other trapping. Nothing wrong with it. I love Christmas. But somewhere in the back of the Christian's mind, I want you all to be thinking about why? Why did Jesus become a man? Why did he become a human being? Cur Deus Homo. So today we're going to look at this passage real quickly, and we're going to talk about several things. One of them is, and Anselm talks about this, and so do other scholars, Jesus had to be, a, there had to be an incarnation because you could not have a relationship, not to the depth and not to the extent that God wanted to have a relationship with human beings unless you could see Him, touch Him, be face to face with Him. Be able to engage with Him on a human level because we were created humans. We were not created to become angelic beings floating around in space. In fact, that's exactly the point of this passage. To which of the angels did He say? The angel, that is not what you're aspiring to. That's way too low. You're aspiring to something greater, to someone greater. So it was to establish a relationship. Secondly, to make a revelation or to reveal something that was hidden. And that was to reveal God Himself. See, in the Old Testament, the people had to... God was behind a vast curtain. And that curtain was behind another curtain. And that curtain was guarded by a troop. Hundreds, maybe. Maybe thousands, I think later on in the history of Israel, thousands. A troop, an army of priests that were there to keep you away. 
to keep you back. Don't come close. Don't get up here. You can come and interact with us priests and we will go and we will make the dangerous trek behind that first curtain. And then once a year, the big priest, the head priest, the high priest would make the very dangerous, life-threatening behind the second curtain. And only one time. And with a lot of blood. He had to take blood back there with him. Otherwise he would die. How in the world would you ever know God that way? You can't and you won't and you, it's, it's impossible. We will all be searching, we'll be wearing ourselves out looking for that one thing when it's not a thing at all. It's a person. So this incredible piece of literature, the book of Hebrews, probably my, personally my favorite book in the Bible, and uh, I think that... Uh, uh, it, it would do everyone well to maybe read through it during Advent, although we don't think of it at that time. But look at verse 1. Let's talk about the relationship. God initiates this relationship, and then he continues it. And the author of Hebrews makes an incredible statement. Long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now what he's saying is, God spoke... He spoke to our fathers or these old patriarchs of the Old Testament and he did it through a prophetic ministry or voice. In Hebrew, it's Navim. The Navi was a prophet. Navim is uh, plural. And these prophets spoke for God. And there were lots of prophets. Noah was a prophet. He preached to his generation repentance. And then, of course, we know all the famous prophets, uh, Moses and Jonah and, and uh, you know, Haggai and uh, Habakkuk. And how would you like to have been named that? Habakkuk. What would be your, what would be your nickname? Hab or Cuck? Both of them would have been a disaster, especially in our culture. All right, so long ago, many t- God initiated the relationship with man. There's never been a time recorded in your Bible where man was out looking for, desperately looking for God and God was just hiding behind a tree and saying, catch me, catch me if you can. Usually, the men and, and women in the Bible are hiding and God's looking for them and saying, where are you? That's the story of Scripture. God initiates the relationship and God continues it. And this author in Hebrews is saying, look, the same God that spoke then is speaking now. Because He has and wants a relationship with you. And here's how you're going to get the relationship. Look at verse 2-4. through Amazing. This is Curly's one thing, but it's not a thing. It's a person. We are looking at the, at the Son of God who the prophets of the past spoke, but now God has spoken to us through His Son. Jesus takes on the role of prophet. In other words, He's the mouthpiece that God employed to speak this particular revelation. It's not that there are not other prophets. There's lots of prophets. Every religion has prophets. People that speak esoterically or speak some secret wisdom from God or speak for God as their main prophet. 
But here we have a text that is very beautiful, very troublesome. Because he's saying this person is now the army that is keeping you away from God. He's the curtain. He's the tabernacle. He's the inner curtain. He's the altar. He's the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant that was inside. He's everything. So now this author is putting up an obstacle. He's saying, here he is. You heard all the prophets speak. You know, they all spoke in the past. But now we have this voice. This speaker. Let's go on. This prophet speaks perfectly and finely and most completely. And here's the description. It is probably the highest, what we call Christology, one of the highest Christologies in the entire Bible. Look at how he just piles on description after description that he goes so high that the only, the only thing you can do with his description is you go low, down, on your knees. He's not describing a person. He's describing God Himself and demanding, if you want entry, you want to get into that presence, here it is. Here's the gate. Here's here's what's going to break down every one of those barriers for you and I. He's spoken through his son, his son, listen, he's his son, his heir, his, he, Jesus was the creator and the upholder. How is he doing that? By his word. This is the same description of God himself in Genesis chapter 1. The very same description. Same description of Jesus in John chapter 1, being the word of God, the same being. He's not the father. We're going to see that in a second. But he is representing God in such a perfect way that the only verbiage or language or uh, description that we can use to describe who this being is, is that he's a son. He is the spitting image of his father. He is the one who, he was the agent by which everything is created. It was not only created by him, it was created for him. And He is upholding it by His very Word. We think we're responsible for our lives, and we are. But behind that is someone else who is upholding us. And it is none less than Jesus. And look at this next part. He is the radiance of God's glory. There's no way to translate this with the full punch. It's impossible. He's not merely a reflection. He's not merely uh, an, a, a mirror image. He is perfectly representing the glory of God. What in the Old Testament, nobody could look at, nobody could see, not even Moses. God had to pass by Moses, and all Moses could see was his hinder parts, which in Hebrew means his, his hinder parts. That's all God, it's almost funny. Here, you, I'll show you what I am. Watch this. And he shows him his behind. You can't look in my face. If you do, you'll die. And here we have someone who's not, there's no, there's no nothing between Jesus and the glory of God. In fact, he is the glory of God. Not a mere reflection. 
But glory itself, all that glory that people were so desperate to see and to find and to have the thing we lost in the garden, here He is in in flesh so that you can touch and feel and hug and hold and know this man. Look at the next phrase. Exact representation of His being. This is a, Jesus said it over and over. People say, well, He never claimed to be God. Oh, He did so many times. It's embarrassing that scholars would say, oh, He never claimed to be God. I and the Father are one. When you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I always do what pleases the Father. I am always representing the Father. I only do what the Father says to do. I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen him. The exact representation of his being. Everything that God is, which no human being can fit all that. It's incomprehensible. But it is apprehensible in the Son. In other words, you can't get your head around God in the abstract. It's impossible. But my goodness, folks, read your Gospels. Children ran up to Jesus and hopped up in his lap and he hugged them and held them. And if you think it's any different now, you don't know Him yet. I know there are obstacles. We have a lot of pride and we have all these weird ideas and we come up with all kinds of stuff. There's not a reason in the world why you cannot call this man your father, your brother, your king, your lover. You can be in His arms. And that's what He came for. So that you're not talking about an abstraction, but a person who loves you and cares for you and will never let you go. The exact representation of His being. Listen. He made purification for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty. Nobody could sit at the right hand of majesty. But one who was God. Divine. And then, of course, he finishes with this long explanation, which is the the hallmark of the writer to the Hebrews, uh, this long explanation of, of logic. Which of the angels did he ever say these things to? Well, none of them, and I'll show you. And he just goes click, click, click through a handful of scriptures, very powerful, to the point. We're not talking about a spiritual being. We're talking about a human being. Cordeus, homo, why the God-man? Why the incarnation? Why are we going to celebrate at Christmas? Why is this one of the major holidays of the Christian faith? It's because our God took on human flesh and came Himself after sending prophets after prophets after prophets who we killed and destroyed. He finally, he gives parables talking about, he says, he despaired. He couldn't send any more prophets. I'll send my son. At least they'll respect him. And when the Pharisees finally figured out who Jesus really was claiming to be, here's what they said. What are we going to do? He just raised Lazarus from the dead. What are we going to do? And one of these bright guys said, I have an idea. Let's kill him. Now folks, you're at Christ the King. You're not at another church today. And I'm glad you are. But let me tell you, if you don't see yourself 
in that place of wanting to find the other one thing at the expense of Him, then you just don't understand Christianity. We're all doing it. We're doing it all the time. We're doing it from the time we're little kids. We're always desperate to find that thing that's going to make you. And we forget that He's the upholder of all things. And so when the ground comes out from underneath us, even Christians, we end up blaming God instead of running to Him and saying, Lord, You're the upholder of all. If the whole world burns up, the psalmist said, if the mountains fall, if the sea dries up, if the whole world goes into a cataclysm, I will trust You. Plus nothing. And that is not what you hear in any other religion. And sadly, you don't hear it in much of Christianity either. You're not going to find it in anything. That one thing doesn't exist. This one person does. This revelation of God is what turned the world upside down. But sadly, through the generations and through time and, of course, through people's selfishness and, and desire for power and money and all the rest that we have preached our hearts out at this church, warning the people of God not to take one minute and give one minute to the idols of our lives. Not one, not any, nothing. And that's the call that this one little passage makes. Here is a being, here is a person, so great, so grand, nothing compared. He goes on, the rest of the book of Hebrews is him comparing Jesus to angels, to Moses, to the priesthood and the high priest. And he goes even so far as in the later chapters to compare Jesus to the to the sacrifices that were burned on the altar. The book of Hebrews, he rolls everything up into this one person. And if you don't have that person, if he's not the one you wake up in the morning thinking about, at night you go to bed thinking about, and and during your day when you're hitting the rough spots, because the book of Hebrews was written to people that were giving up their faith. They were deconstructing. They were what are called ex-evangelicals. You've probably been reading about this. If you haven't, I'll be happy to share with you. There are lots and lots of Christians are abandoning their faith. They're running out the door. Because the church has been selling them a thing, not a person. And that's not okay. It's idolatry. And deconstructed Christians are not deconstructed. They are apostate. You can call it what you like. You can throw any kind of a new 21st century term on it. It's nothing but apostasy and idolatry. And we don't know the threat. We don't know the danger that we're in. And this author calls us back. He says, don't let anything come in your way. Because the people in Hebrews were suffering all kinds of persecution and doubt and fear and all the rest. They were looking in all the wrong places for that one thing. And these were believers that had let go. 
And I, folks, I don't want that to happen to any of you. I don't want it to happen to your kids. You know, when my kids, I have two sons, I have two grandchildren, I got a lot of grand dogs, I don't know what they're doing, what the deal is with that. But. You know, when, they, when, 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 when I struggled with my boys and they, you know, would go off the rails, I thought, you know, what, what did I give them? Did I give them Jesus? And I'm, I hate to tell you this, I, but I'll tell you, I don't care. I never gave them Jesus. I gave them a lot of rules, a lot of behavior, act like this, do this, don't embarrass me at church, don't embarrass me by your life choices, don't do this, don't do that. A lot of don'ts. And then when they looked at me, did I represent Jesus? No, I would rage and get angry and drink. and do, I would do all the things that didn't represent Jesus and then want them to know Him. How would they know Him? You want your kids to never leave the faith? Give them Jesus Christ. Let them know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. And then your ch- there won't be any reason for them to leave. If they're leaving, they're leaving for that one thing that the world is... Pr- and it has. It's promised us some very sparkly things. And even in church, my God, what happens? So let me finish with this. He came to forge a relationship and continue a relationship that you read about in your Bible from front to back. He revealed who God really is because He was God. He's not just representing, He's not just a prophet talking about God. He is God Himself. And finally, look at the third verse, second part of the third verse. He came to make purification for sins. And later in the book of Hebrews, it says he was that high priest and he was that sacrifice himself. Who could do that? Just an ordinary human being? No. The one person who sat down at the right hand of God, that place was reserved for one that ontologically, in other words, in his very being, same as. You You don't put something... You know, I, don't, I can put my puppies up on my couch in my lap next to me. They're not me. They're not even like me. They're much better than I am. Mark Twain said, if heaven went by merit, your dogs would get in, but you wouldn't. But that one person is invited to sit down at the right hand of God the Father with the power, the, 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 the pulsing power of the entire universe and beyond pulsing between them, the the person and work of the Holy Spirit, the divine trinity that we talk about in Christianity, all there, all together, pulsing in love and passion for the creation and for you and inviting you to come. Why the God-man? Well, let me leave you with John Calvin's words. It's in your bulletin every week, but I'm sure... Some of you probably never read it. Listen to what that little thing in your bulletin says. All good which could be thought or desired is to be found in Jesus Christ alone. He was humbled to exalt us. He became a slave to free us. He became poor to enrich us. He was sold to redeem us. Made captive for our deliverance. Condemned for our absolution. He was made a curse for our blessing. An offering for sin for our righteousness. He was marred 
that we might be restored. He died for our life so that by Him harshness is softened, anger appeased, darkness made light, injustice justified, weakness made strong, dejection consoled, sin prevented, scorn despised, fear made sure, debt canceled, toil made light, sadness rejoiced, misfortune made blessed, difficulty eased, disorder ordered, division united, ignominy made noble, rebellion quelled, threats threatened, ambushes uncovered, assaults assailed, effort weakened, combat combated, war warred against, and vengeance avenged, torment tormented, damnation damned, Ruin ruined and held prisoner. Death done to death. And immortality made immortal. That's who you serve. That's who you love. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, thanks... uh, for this revelation of your Son, the Redeemer, who in his own body made purification for sins and comes and invites us with arms of love. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come and learn of me. I'm gentle and humble. And you will find rest for your souls. Lord Jesus Christ, help us. Save us. And have mercy on us according to your grace. Amen.